Hello, Redemption Hill family and friends out there. I'm glad that you are joining us today. Uh, we are back. Uh, that's the news for today. But unfortunately, we are not back together in one place to worship. Instead, we are back together in the book of Ephesians together as a body. Our last sermon in this book, believe it or not, was uh, just a little bit over two months ago on March 9th, quite a while ago. So if you were here with us uh, for that, and maybe you just don't quite remember what happened in the series, or maybe you're newer to listen to our sermons and just not sure what, what that series is about, either way, don't worry. Uh, what we're going to do is we're going to do just a light recap to help us kind of find our bearings along this series, and then we'll dive back into what is uh, just an amazing book of the Bible, one of my favorites, in fact. So uh, Ephesians is, it's only six chapters long. It's not very long at all. Uh, even though it's pretty short, it does pack a really powerful punch. The general layout of the book of Ephesians is pretty easy to understand uh, as well. It's split into uh, two halves. So one book with two halves, and each of those halves carry a, a kind of theme inside the book. The first half of the book, uh, chapters one, two, and three, pretty neatly divided, just that front half of the book, that half contains the opening theme. And that theme all along the first part of the book is the implications of the gospel on our identity. Uh, essentially what the gospel does to a person. So the front side of the book, it's pretty amazing as it's this continual lavishing on of grace to believers. So we're going to hear things in the front of the book that we are in Christ. In Christ is the kind of favorite phrase of Paul in this series. In Christ, we are loved. We are adopted we are sealed, we are saved, we are reconciled, we are assured, we are strengthened, we are called, we are equipped, and we're given an eternal inheritance that will not fade and can never be taken from us. This is what is true about you if you are in Christ. So that is the first half of the book. The tone and tenor of that first half, that theme, is that without Christ, we are, we're doomed. We're in a really tough and rough spot because of our sin. We're alienated from God, separated from him. We have a penalty of our sin hanging over us, and we can do nothing about it. But in Christ, by grace, through faith, we're given a brand new identity. So, so you're in a really bad spot initially without Christ, but the implications of the gospel is you get grace and saved, and you get this whole new identity lavished upon you that you didn't earn. There's supposed to be comfort and peace in that for us at the beginning of the book. This is the identity that you have because of God, and it can never be taken away. Then the back half of the book, chapters 4, 5, and 6, they're going to kind of be the, the what's next part. After you've been given this new identity in Christ that you didn't earn, you didn't really understand about it or know how to use it, what do you do with that identity afterwards? After we're given it, how do we walk in it? The second half of the book can be kind of like uh, an oversimplified uh, way to think of it. It's kind of like an owner's manual to teach us how to rightly use this identity or this gift that we have received. How can we 
use and walk in and live in in light of this identity that we've been given. So the kind of the, the onus or the undertone is going to be for us as we hear this back half of the book, uh, it's going to be this idea of, hey, hey, don't be a goof. Understand that you should not throw out the manual. You have this gift, you don't know how to use it. So read and submit and understand what it is to live in and use this beautiful identity that you have. So we're all seeking to, to humbly come before the back half of the book and say, God, teach us how to walk in light of this beautiful gift that you have given us. Now we find ourselves today in the fourth chapter verses 17 through 24, which means we're in that second half of the book. We are in the instruction and empowerment and learning part of Ephesians. So expect to hear guidance. Expect to, to learn. But remember, guidance is only given after grace. The order of operation there is important. You, you don't get, get guidance and then fulfill it and then get grace. You're given grace. And then after you've been given that grace that you didn't earn, then you're given guidance on how to walk out that, great, that grace. This part of the book is not meant to be legalistic. It's not meant to be duty. It's development and aid and love for you and me to be able to walk out this thing that is just foreign to us. As we get ready to read these verses, we also must remember what came before. In verse 16, the, the section immediately before this, the sermon that we would have gone over about two months ago, Paul instructed the church that those who are followers of Christ, all of them, all believers, all who are saved and redeemed, are to be united as a body, the church, and each of us as a part of that body are to be a, a member of the body who does work in the body. More literally, Paul actually says, Says we need to do the work of the body. All of us, if we are in Christ, this is part of what it looks like to use and walk in the grace that we have been given. We do the work of the body of Christ, the church. That should press us to probably ask, well, Paul, what kind of work? What do you mean? Can you be a little bit more specific about it? Which he does in this text. And we may be surprised the work that Paul kind of gives us to do as the body is probably not what you thought he was going to say. It's going to probably be something a little bit different than what you would think of as, as work in and around the church. So let's read the text uh, and, and hope that the Spirit will show us what it is to walk inside of these words that Paul is giving us. Ephesians 4, chapter 17. Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you, this is Christians, must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. Verse 20, but, here's the switch, but that is not the way you learned Christ. Assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. This is 
the word of the Lord for us today. Right out of the gate, we may have been thrown a little bit by the the topic that Paul dives into. When he says, hey, you need to do the work of the body, then he starts diving into the topic of being godly, of, of putting off the old self and putting on the new, which may make us think, well, Paul, did you get ADD there? Did you like just forget what you were talking about and just squirrel and, and go another direction? No, he didn't. That's exactly his point here. The work of the church isn't just for a pastor or leaders or certain people to do. It's for everyone to do. That was the point of the text prior. And part of the work for everyone to do is to model Jesus and live in righteousness, this new identity that we've been given. That's the work for all to do. Now, this is a pretty interesting paradigm uh, considering how churches tend to operate or how we can accidentally think of the church if we are not careful. We as the church can easily think the work of the church is for other talented people to do. And it's done by excelling in some sort of visible talent that is used in some sort of, of corporate manner. So, so maybe it's, it's a singer who has a beautiful voice and they, and they lead the congregation in worship. And you're like, that's the work of the church. Or maybe it's a guitarist playing a, a sweet guitar riff or, or guitar solo or, you know, whatever your thing is in worship. And you're like, that's a gift because it leads us in worship. Or maybe it's to be a drummer because everybody knows the drummer is the coolest part of of the band, right? Or, or, or maybe it's to be the preacher or, or the teacher who, who talks to the congregation uh, for, from a, a pulpit or, or some sort. Now, while those positions, those visible talent positions that address people in large are, are really important and necessary, Paul says, guys, there is more than that involved in doing the work of the church. There's something greater. There's something that is foundational that if all members don't partake in it, then the church will cease to be the church and utterly miss her purpose. This is the crucial work of pursuing holiness, of pursuing the character and righteousness of God by every single person who claims to follow Jesus. We all are meant to wrestle with that. Before we press into the parts of the text to see how it's laid out together, uh, we may need to kind of do a, a, a little bit uh, more. Can, can we just admit the idea of the entire church being holy or, or righteous or being like Jesus is a big deal? Can we just admit that at a base level? Because what happens if the church, who are the people of God, stop looking like or acting like or modeling the Savior that they vocally proclaim to the world? What happens then? Well, they run the risk of being called out appropriately by the world as hypocrites. You guys are just hypocrites. You talk about this Jesus that you do not care to actually be like. We want nothing to do with you. That, that's one thing. And we'll lose the ability to be a light in the darkness, to share the gospel with other people who need it. That is another part of it. We can hear about this idea of Christians who don't look like Jesus and, and begin to think, well, that couldn't be me, right? We automatically think of, oh, I know somebody like that. It's like that guy and that guy, right? We, we, we automatically assume it, it is someone else. And we'll normally, when we do that, we'll, we'll kind of mount a defense for us as we believe that we're not the guy who that could apply to. We tend to say maybe things like, well, I'm a pretty moral guy. I haven't broken any laws. And generally, most people like me, so like I'm fine. 
right? Of course, uh, I'm doing the right thing, but the metrics of people like me, that's actually a really dangerous metrics to use when trying to decide if you are becoming like the savior that you proclaim or not. Because often when all people like us, it's because we fit in with them, we're just like them, and there's nothing different about us. It's because we look more like them than the Jesus that we proclaim. And Paul refers to this as walking as the Gentiles do in the text, meaning when you walk in a way that fits in, or better yet, you just blend in. There's no discernible difference between you and someone else who who does not have an identity in Christ, who doesn't have grace or a transformed heart. Paul says that is a problem. That's walking as Gentiles do. And he'll say in the opening of this text, don't do that. Don't walk like them. Don't, Don't do what they do. Now, we should also pay attention to the force of how Paul leads into this, though. Often when preaching or or maybe speaking to someone about faith or or God, uh, pastors or or all of us, we can tend to maybe sometimes kind of soft play it and be a little meek and say things like, you may consider if, or might God be leading you towards, right? We give these kind of light statements, something that passively asks the listener, would you possibly maybe consider what I'm saying to you? But Paul makes no such passive uh, attempt to speak to us in this text if we are in Christ. He doesn't do that. Instead, Paul goes right to the point. He says, now this I say to you, that is all Christians, and I testify in the Lord which is him saying this is not a suggestion, this isn't an invitation, this isn't a for your consideration, do whatever you want with it, this is a command given by Paul under the authority of Jesus himself. He's going, I'm telling you this under the authority of Jesus, so it's as if Jesus is telling it to you himself. The command is stop living like they do. Stop, stop walking as the world. Stop walking like the Gentiles do. Stop blending in. Stop being chameleons in the world that you were saved out of. You're an alien to the world now. Stop trying to be a member of the world. Stop walking in what Paul calls the futility of your own mind. Now, this is a wake-up call. Wake up and see living like the world is useless. It won't lead you anywhere good or anywhere that you need to go. Believers, to walk like the world is not what a son and daughter of God is meant to do. And therein lied the problem. Many Christians were content or lulled into a position to where they fell into or decided to live lives just like everyone else and just like the life that they had kind of before Christ. They lived lives that modeled and flowed and exhibited all the things of the world. And Paul says with conviction, brothers and sisters, you have to stop. You have to stop. Put off that old self. You have to stop. Paul follows his call to not walk or live like those who are not saved with a proverb of sorts. It's it's an interesting way that he kind of breaks down things. Basically, he says, those who are not in Christ or who follow the ways of the world, on a base level, they're darkened in their understanding and separated from God. Right? They, they do not understand God and they're separated because of sin from God because of their hardness of heart. Now, this is heavy to swallow. 
right? Because there's something inside when we hear like they're, they're, they're darkened in their understanding and they're hardened on heart. Like, oh man, that's just kind of difficult. But Paul is pointing out what a sinful state outside of Christ does between us and God. We cannot be linked together with God in our sinful state. We saw that in the garden, and we see that all through the the Bible, that we are separated from God because of our sin. We don't understand God or the world properly, and we live outside of that misunderstanding. We should kind of think uh, of the book of Romans here. Romans says that humanity outside of their relationship with God becomes twisted in a way where they worship the creation instead of the creator of the creation. And we've got to just kind of wrestle with that to worship something that something greater created, but ignore the something greater that created it is just a weird, odd thing. This is what he's talking about. This is spiritually a life lived in hardness of heart, a heart of stone. This leads to a type of ignorance or complete miss on how things are. We must be clear about this. Each of us before Jesus did this. This is how sin affects and infects humanity. So when we talk about being separated and hardened from God, we're not talking about people who are lesser or or dumb or they're not as valuable as we are. All of us before Christ lived this way. Right? We, even in Christ, at one time lived exactly this way, and we needed God to intervene to save us from ourselves. This is not a statement of we're so much better. It's God has saved us. Now, if that's not bad enough, we are separated from God, and our hearts are hard in our sinful state, Paul then kind of traces a downward spiral of where that can lead humans next if they're not careful, right? We can have a hard heart and and not understand things, but we can move past a hardened heart and a darkened understanding to what Paul calls this reckless heart, with a a dull, almost dead-to-what-is-right understanding of what is happening. He talks about that in verse 19. They have become callous. They're not just a little bit hardened in heart. They are calloused in heart, and they have given themselves, right, fully given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. This is a this is a hard, dark spiral. You have gone to a place that was far, far worse than just having a little bit of a hardened heart. Paul is showing us it's not uncommon to see a hard heart turn into a, a vile heart. To see a person live in their darkened perspective and chase that perspective to a, to a pretty terrible spot. To a place where they live completely without sensitivity in their heart to God anymore or to what is right anymore. This is a shift Paul's wanting us to see clearly in the text. Humanity, if it is not careful, can easily move from a hardened heart to a heart that's almost dead and does not feel or process. All it does is chase its next fix of sensuality or or, or greed or, or indulgence or impurity or need for more. And it just becomes rabid in this chase. And all of a sudden the heart becomes callous and can't even feel very well anymore. Can you see Paul's point here? Chasing what the world chases can be deadly. It can lead you to a place where you don't even hardly recognize yourself because you're making decisions and doing things that you don't even understand why you're doing them anymore. 
I don't think Paul is making the case that every person who is not saved will end up in this same spot of the, of the worst of the worst of the worst callous sinner and heinous sinner ever. That's why I called this section a proverb rather than a law. It can happen quite easily to any or all of us. It doesn't necessarily mean it will, that every person without God will become the, the worst of the worst person. But we can all see it does happen and it happens all over the place, right? We've probably seen friends or acquaintances or maybe even we've done it in the past where we find ourselves or see someone else all of a sudden doing unspeakable things. And you're like, how in the world did that happen? They become slaves to their appetites. Their constant need for more drives them. Paul is pointing out a progression here. Living devoid of God will mess with you. It might make you lost in your sensuality where you don't even recognize yourself. It may just mess with you internally where your heart just gets kind of hard and kind of jacked up and you just don't view people or treat people the way that you're supposed to. But either way, living without God will do things to a person. It's undoubtable. R.C. Sproul puts it this way. Notice that since they do not have God in their minds, they do not have God in their actions. Right, Really important progression. They don't have God in their minds, so God does not ever filter into their actions. This is what Paul is referencing. When we live through more and more and more time without God, pushing him out of our minds, pushing him out of our views, pushing him out of our, our interest, outside of the borders of, of, of who we are, then before we know it, God doesn't just live on the margins of our minds. He lives in the margins of our hearts as well. He becomes distant in our minds and our perspectives. See, this is a perfect storm. When God isn't in your mind and truth isn't in your mind anymore, slowly but surely it affects your heart and your actions can begin doing things that you never quite thought possible. Paul in this text handles it in a really helpful way though. I think he helps us process it well. He doesn't just slam his fist down and go, hey, stop being like them and just leave it like that. Instead, he gives us the command, hey, don't walk like the Gentiles do, put off the old self. But then he kind of helps us understand how to obey the command. He does it by adopting this metaphor of putting off and putting on. Putting off an old identity of, of who we were before and putting on a new identity of who we are in Christ. Do not live in that old self. Take it off, but live inside that new self. Watch his logic. He says, okay, stop watching, walking as the Gentiles do or emulating them. Stop living with your own mind and self being your guide and reference for all. Right? If, if God's not in our minds and, and he's not forming the way that we think, then we become the guide of all that's right and all that is good. Stop living like that because that'll end up making you follow the desires of your mind and the desires of your own heart. And he won't actually filter into that. This process of chasing your own wants and living out of your own knowledge, this wasn't how you learned Christ, Paul says. Right? Just chasing your own will, doing your own thing. That's not how you got saved. Paul's calling them to remember salvation and redemption from before. We're not born Christians. Right? It would be much easier that way. We'd all love to believe that at times. We're not born Christians. We are born in the mold of Adam, which is we are sinners. Ephesians 2 talks about this. We are dead in our sin and our trespasses, lost in it without hope. But God... 
right? But God intervenes and saves us by faith. So the process of learning Christ, as Paul puts it, which is not just to know facts about him, but to know the person of Christ and to come to a crossroads in your life where you follow him because you find truth in him and you find life in him. And all of a sudden you're going, nothing else is worthwhile. You are the truth and you are the life. So I will follow you. Paul was referencing the contradiction between being redeemed and not. Once you are redeemed, you're no longer just following yourself. You are following Christ. Saying, remember, you were lost and hardened in your heart, darkened in knowledge, but then Christ, he woke you. He showed you the truth and he gave you understanding, meaning it was Christ who removed the blinders from your heart so that you could see. But he did that by calling you to follow him not to follow your own futile mind. You did not get saved by continuing to follow yourself and your mind alone. Paul is declaring You have to understand following Jesus is how we got saved and following Jesus is what we do as saved people. On the contrary of following ourselves, that's not how we found Christ. Following ourselves is exactly what got us into a place where we needed salvation in the, in the first place. So just roundabout, just basic, Paul's going, hey, when you follow your own will alone and you do your own thing and God isn't involved, it takes you to bad places. God saved you out of that, but then you're walking back to it again. Do not go back to that place. Don't go there. Don't go and live like you did before salvation. This is putting on your old self. Don't do that. Put off that old self. That's not you anymore. Put off the old self. Leave it on the ground behind you. Don't pick up that old identity, that old way of life, the old fleshly pursuits. Those things belong to your old manner of life. They aren't for you anymore. They belong to a person who isn't alive anymore. The remnants of a person who is gone. The remnants of a person who used to lead you astray in deceitful desires. Then comes the antithesis, the solution or the plan of action instead. Paul says, because of that, leave that old self alone and put on over and over and over your new self. By being, what he says, renewed in the spirit of your minds. Put off the old self, put on the new by being renewed in the spirit of your mind. To make sure we're following Paul appropriately here, he's using that metaphor here for putting off and taking uh, for putting on and taking off. And he wants you to think of clothing, right? Of putting on clothes, like putting on a jacket. We need to be mindful of if we're putting on or off our old identity the same way we're mindful of and intentional of putting on clothing before we leave the house. Now he's not saying you need to put on your new identity as in get saved over and over and over each day, but we need to re-put on our new identity by, by deciding to see it and walk in it and live in light of it. He's showing us even when a believer is saved, they can still begin to slip back into an old way of life or a worldly way of life. The pull of sin, the pull of the world is still strong until Jesus comes and recreates all things. It is easy for it to pull us and we can slip into living out of of greed or or need or appetites of, of things and desires that are not good. We can easily slip back into that if we're not careful and intentional. He's going, so be careful to put on the new you so you don't slip back into the old you because that old you is always going to whisper in your ear and try and pull you back. 
He's just showing us that we need to be careful. You are not immune to sin and horrible things even when you're saved. You're not immune to it. So Paul's answer for this is a renewal in the spirit of the mind. In other words, Paul is saying we need to be made new in the attitude of our minds, in in our head, in what we think about, which probably raises the question, okay, how exactly do you do that? Well, we are what we think, or better yet, we are what we think about. Essentially, we move in the direction of what we give our mental real estate to. Do you understand that? What you think about, your heart's moving towards that because your mind is already giving all of your thoughts to it. So Paul is saying there is this consistent need to focus what we give our minds to and what is in our minds. We need to drive our brains to direct them and navigate them to a place that is good. Because like it or not, where our minds and where we allow them to go, there our hearts will follow as well. Right? What you let your mind marinate on, your heart will chase after. If you then want to defend your heart, you have to intentionally lead your mind. Your mind is significant. What you give it to, what you let it marinate on. That means what you watch, what you read, what you think about, what you pull up on YouTube, what you search on Google. All of these things play into your heart. So be careful of the things that you let up in here because they will come down here into the heart. Again, that might lead to more questions. Is Paul just saying, okay, we need to just be uber careful to not uh, see or watch or hear anything bad or vile? Is that his instruction? Just run from anything bad? Is that the only thing that he, he wants us to do here? Well, yes and no, right? Yeah, watching or looking at or reading or thinking about horrible things is not a good idea for your heart because when your mind thinks about them long enough, your heart will begin to chase it. No matter how strong you think you are, it will affect your heart. So on one hand, it is a good idea to monitor what goes into your mind and be selective of what you see and hear and allow your mind to feed on and your brain to think on. Yes, that is one side of this. That's why things like watching shows Shows that are inappropriate, even if socially they're, they're super popular, is not so good, right? That's why Christians always talked about kind of Game of Thrones. Is that a good idea? Because you cannot lie. There's naked people everywhere and people had to pretend, well, that doesn't actually affect my heart. Paul would say, well, that's actually not true. Yes, you need to defend what comes into your head because it will move into your heart. But unfortunately, that's not the only step. We're not just turning away from anything that could be bad. He says we also need to renew ourselves on what is good and true. It's not enough to just avoid the bad stuff. We have to fill our hearts and minds with what is true, meaning what's true about Jesus. What's true about God? What's true about this gospel? And by filling your mind with what is true, It renews your mind and your heart. It's helping you put on the new self and stirring your affections for the God who has done much for you. Paul paints the picture, the old sinful self. It lived in a vacuum of its own will. Right? It did what it wanted. It looked at what it wanted. Uh, It's... it's, uh, Its actions and its mind and its hearts just kind of did whatever it wanted at the time. 
right? It, it filled itself with whatever desire seemed good at the time. And that often led the heart to sinful places, chasing desire and meaningless. But the new self, it doesn't live in the same vacuum where just your mind and your will and your thoughts rule. Instead, the truth about God and Jesus and the gospel, they enter the picture and they begin to be formative in that new self and in that new life. You are not stuck in the futility of only what you think and what you want because what you think and what you want outside of God will at some point deceive you. So God gets invited in and instead of deceiving you, it transforms you. The new you is renewed by pointing the mind at what is true about Christ and what he has done doing it regularly. And the Holy Spirit uses that to transform and conform you to the likeness of Jesus. This means that Paul is asking Ephesus and us hearing this to be intentional. Become active gatekeepers of your mind. Become active gatekeepers of what you think about to be uh, mindful uh, uh, of what is in your mind, to be as mindful as what you think about as what you put on, right? This is why the Sermon on the Mount was so tricky for people hearing it. When Jesus started saying, hey, it's not adultery just if you cheat on your wife, but if you constantly or not constantly, if you think about or you indulge yourself in thinking about cheating on your wife, you're just going to just as a bad of a spot because that's leading into your heart. He was transforming the way we think about things by saying, be careful about what you let have your mental real estate. If you hear this and think, awesome. Another thing I have to think about, I got to be super careful about not marinating or thinking on or paying attention to, to things that could possibly hurt me. Maybe you hear there's like, great, that's a sense of duty. And we have COVID and all this other rough stuff going on right now. And that's another thing I have to do. If that's the case, you probably just need to pause and reframe because that's like kind of a little sinful tendency, just kind of throwing a temper tantrum, uh, which, which happens in me. So, so we need to just pause and reframe things. There is a glorious Savior who is for you and loves you relentlessly. There's a God the Father who's made a covenant and he's so desperately, or not desperately, he, he's so uh, is devoted to be in relationship with you that he will not let you go. And this Savior Jesus, who is relentless for you, he has set down what is rightfully his, his life and his righteousness to pick up for himself something that was not his, our sin. And at one point we couldn't see this Savior because of our sin and brokenness, but now because of this Savior, we can see him. And more than that, we have access to his perfection over our lives. And not only that, we have access to God the Father and we're adopted and we're secure. And no matter what we do, that Savior promises, I will never leave you and I will never forsake you with all of that in view. We still have remnants of sin that pull on us and they beckon us to ignore and forget what that beautiful Savior has done. So Paul tells us, since there is a battle in your mind over your heart between your old you and your new you, look at Jesus. Pay attention to what he has done. This is not him trying to heap legalism and duty on you. This is him trying to love you by saying, be careful. You're going to get hurt if you do not see the beauty of what is true in Jesus over your life regularly to help you put on the new identity of who you are. 
Let that Savior keep working in you and on you and free you from the pull of the old self. Let him guide you to life to fulfill you, to bring you peace in his goodness and his rest and his righteousness. You see, Paul's command isn't, hey, just, just, just shape up and earn your way. No, it's for you and me to fight to look at the one who's already done it all for you. Right? He's not telling you to do more. He's telling you to look at the one who's already done it all. Look at him. Let that form you. Let that peace wash over you. Let wave of wave of wave of grace hit you because of the truth of Jesus and who he is in your life and over your life. This is not a legalistic cold demand. It's loving direction to remember who you are and what you've been given. It's to understand if you're not intentionally putting off the old self, you're not going to be remembering the new self, which is the gift of what you have. Reject and run from the old self and the old way of life. In view of the entire book of Ephesians, Paul's drive here to all of us is, if you are in Christ, you've been given the most glorious gift possible. So pay attention that you do not pick up or that you do not pick up your old life instead. Right? Pick up the gift. Pick up that identity. Don't trade the beautiful identity that you have for junk and garbage. Right? Don't change it for old, feudal things. And one major way to do this, to, to continue picking up the gift that you've been given, is to pay attention to what's on your mind and fill your mind day and night regularly with what is true. If this is a command, right? Paul says, all of you do this. And I'm saying it on the authority of Jesus. So if this is a, a, a command, it also leads us to decide, are we going to heed it or not? Each one of you listening and myself preaching and looking through this text, we all will have to decide for ourselves, will we right now take an honest look at the person that we've been putting on? Have we been uh, kind of wooed into uh, living uh, a, a life outside of the truth of what Jesus has done? Have we spent time filling our heart with meaningless things, of old things, with, with desires that are creeping in that are, that are, that are not good? Have, have we just kind of been wooed into trying to follow the trend of other people and all of a sudden found ourselves in a place where it started to kind of mess with our hearts? If that is the case... Your gentle and yet persistent Savior is right now at the door knocking saying, I never left you. I promised I wouldn't forsake you. I've always been right here with you and over you. But do you think you may want to pick up the real you again and follow me? You're, you're following something that's going to hurt you. right? I'm right here. You want, to, you, want to, you want to pick up that better gift, that better identity, so you can walk in the beauty of who God is and what he has done for you? Do you want to follow me? See, he's slow to anger, right? Make no mistake, yes, God can get angry, but he is not looking for every opportunity to crush you and get angry with you. So right now, if you realize, man, I've just been putting on that old identity um, pretty often. I didn't even kind of realize it. He's there going, hey, I know. Come here, come follow me again. At every turn, he looks to love you and invite you back into right relationship and communion with him in your life. If you find yourself clothed in the old you, I just invite you, as we kind of close this down and we begin to worship later, would you just pray about that? Pray for help to see and walk in what God has given you. God, I've been putting on the old me and I'm not living in light of the new me and what you've done. Will you help me with that? 
Will you help me see clearly again what is true? And, and then what's just a practical way to remind yourself of what is true? Then I would look at this week, how can I just have some time where I open the Bible and pray, Holy Spirit, show me what's true and who I am in Jesus more this week. So remember, to, to put on the new you, it's not just to try and be good. It's to feel yourself with what is good and true and let that transform you. If you, as of late, have controlled your mind and the direction you pull, you, you point it and you've seen some victories there and your affection has been stirred from God and you feel more like a son or daughter of God than you kind of ever have before, then man, I would just rejoice with you and say, take that win. That is amazing. That's a, that's a mark of, of growth. Would you just pray a little bit after this? Thank you, God, that you're doing that. Thank you that you're transforming me. Will you help me to continue to look at you? You're so good and you're gracious. Win and rejoice and be thankful. You don't always have to, to crush yourself. You can celebrate the win, right? But each and every one of us have to understand that Paul is calling us to ask, hey, what self have you been putting on? You've been walking like the old you? You've been walking in light of the truth of the new you. I'd lovingly say, if you never read the word of God, you're putting on the old self. If you're never listening to preaching, you're putting on the old self. If you're never around community so nobody can ever tell you if you're kind of slipping up or kind of falling into a bad self, you're putting on the old self. Would you examine that today? Would you ask the Holy Spirit to help you with that? Would you just kind of give him margin to, to stir that and adjust that however he sees fit? Next week, we'll dive further into looking at what living this life of renewal, a renewed uh, mind or spirit of the mind. We're going to look at that. We're going to look at how all believers doing the hard work of putting on the new self, we're going to look at what is the fruit of this. What does it look like as believers operate together? What, is the, what does a church look like if everyone were to put on the new self and be renewed what would it look like? That's what the text next week looks into, and I'm going to be excited to dig in that with you. Until then, I hope you hear Paul's words and take them seriously and hear Jesus graciously beckoning you. Hey, come closer. Let me, let me walk with you. Come, come follow me. Let me remind you of who you are. Grace after grace after grace he gives to us. Will we let him continue to transform us and renew us so we can see the beauty of what he has done and walk in light of that in his kingdom and on his mission? I pray we'll do that. I pray that we would be a people of transformation. I would encourage you in light of where we're at today too. Uh, we can't have church services together for a while longer. We can gather digitally and I'm thankful for that. But one of the things that means for you and me is we have to be a little bit more intentional and active to kind of shepherd our own heart. So right now, even with this sermon, it's a great time for this to just go, hey, what am I thinking about? What am I doing? Am I taking intentional intentionality in, the, in pursuing God and let him be close to me and lead me. We have a worship guide. It's supplied in the notes on the video. There's some songs in there and some prayers. I'd recommend that you go through those and spend some time with God after this. And I pray that he helps transform you and the Holy Spirit would be ever close to be working in you right now and show you the beauty of who God is. Now let us pray. God, I thank you for this text. Uh, on a personal note, I thank you for the comfort of being back in a book 
that we get to let you do the work, the heavy lifting of continuing to see how your Bible opens up and affects us. Holy Spirit, would you draw near? Would you do your work in us? And would you transform us? Help us be people who put on the new self and live in light of that. Will you transform us? Will you renew us? Will you pull us out of the old self? Help us to continually repent and turn to you and find the beauty of that. God, if anyone hears this and there's a sense of duty or obligation, I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would work there too. It is not cruelty to remind us of the beauty of what you've given us. Will you let us see that and worship you in light of that? We pray that in your name. God, be with us as your church and your people in this time that's very different. Help guide us and lead us. May we not have a sense that we can't be the church, but would we have a sense that we can worship you and we can still be on mission and live in your kingdom even now. We pray that in your name. Be glorified, Father. Amen. Church, uh, until we see each other uh, again, I hope that you are well. I truly do look forward to the day that we can all be together worshiping again. I don't know when that will be, but understand just because we can't be together, it doesn't mean that we cannot worship. I love you guys, and I look forward to seeing you later. Have a good day.